contracts, intellectual property, labor law, and much more. Make up the, the wonderful world of entertainment law. Let's take a moment and learn about this vast area law. Lights, camera, action. And scene. Hello, everyone, and live from New York, it's End Scene, an entertainment law podcast. <laughs> so uh, I'm Tony Lee Costas. And I'm Evan Narr. And we are here in front of a ton of guests and filming our first live podcast in front of a studio audience here at our alma mater, New York Law School. Thank you to everyone for being here, to IPLS and to MEFLA for having us as well. Uh, and it's really cool. I have my fiance in the audience. I have a former boss in the audience. I have friends in the audience. And we're here with just lovely people on yeah, the panel. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just curious. So I'm here every Monday and Tuesday, practically every, well, for four years now. But how does it feel to be back in New York Law School? It, it's been a while. I, I like The last time I came here was when we had graduation, like the in May 2022. Like I graduated in 21, but they had the graduation with all three years. And I came... Um, to pick up something, tickets for the event. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's been it's been a it's been a long time, but not much has changed. Just some new faces, but I'm glad to be here. Do you have PTSD? I'm just more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you know what? Once you graduate, New York Law School is a great school, and then you can be making your own podcast and and doing great things in the world and changing Absolutely. the legal profession. Uh, so we are here with our. Actually, I'm Tony. I'm taking your line. Why don't you introduce we, our guest? Yeah, we got a special guest for you guys. Uh, this is a. A massive get for NCN and certainly for uh, the symposium here at New York Law School. We have one, the one and only Liz Chan here. Uh, if you don't know who Liz is, she is a Christmas singer and songwriter. Uh, since the launch of her debut album, Everyday Holidays, Chan has produced 12 albums of Christmas music featuring multiple top 20 Billboard hits and a Grammy-nominated spoken word and music album, The Queen of Christmas. Her work has received critical acclaim and award nominations for Christmas songwriting and music videos. In 2018, The New Yorker profiled Chan with the title The Queen of Christmas. She's performed on Good Morning America, which is a very familiar place for me, of course, um, and has been featured in The New York Times, Variety, among others. From September to Christmas, Chan and her music are featured on airwaves all over the country. She is also the CEO of Mary Bride Music Enterprises, an independently owned record label, which exclusively produces Christmas and seasonal holiday content. The imprint founded on 2012 has produced 12 albums in multiple languages and released dozens of Christmas singles worldwide. Chan lives with her husband and two daughters in Manhattan. Her daughter, Noelle, is often featured on Chan's albums and videos and is also known as the pr Princess of Christmas. Her catalog of Christmas music now numbers thousands of songs. Let's give a round of applause to Liz for coming here. Thank you so much for coming. So let's, as we usually do in our end scene podcast, we kind of give a lay of the land. So today we will be talking about a bombshell Lord of the Rings lawsuit, which is why you see the decorum here in the front uh, that came out this week, and also a conversation with Elizabeth Liz on how she became a singer-songwriter, what inspired her to pursue Christmas music, <clears throat> thoughts on the music industry and artist rights, AI in music and how she successfully blocked Mariah Carey's trademark application of Queen of Christmas. And lastly, Tony, Liz, and I will be sharing our favorite holiday traditions. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we always have a fun cue. 
Um, and as always, Evan and I are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. So anything that we say in today's episode is purely our opinion and not representative of our employers in any way, shape, and form. And nothing that we say in today's episode is to be construed as legal advice. So he's that, so good at that. I, I, I've got it down to a T. I thought Mickey Mouse loved me though. That's <laughs> Listen, I can't talk for the mouse. All right, I, I can imitate him. You want to hear my imitation? Oh, hi, everybody. Oh, it's me, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Stop being such a good AI. <laughs> we got a lot to talk about that for, for sure. So let, let's just go on. Uh, first up on the docket is our discussion on the $250 million Lord of the Rings lawsuit that came out. Uh, for those of you that don't know about Lord of the Rings, you're probably living under a rock. But in case you don't, it was a movie series that came out in 2001 to 2003. Uh, I have here the third movie, Return of the King. Heralded as probably one of the top 10 movies of all time. And it's based on the late J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, Lord of the Rings. There's also a Hobbit series that is a prequel to Lord of the Rings that came out from 2012 to 2014, based also on the J.R.R. Tolkien lore. And now there is an Amazon Prime TV show called Rings of Power, which predates even The Hobbit. Uh, it takes us before The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And before we begin, Liz, I think you were telling us on our call earlier that you were involved in Lord of the Rings yeah, series. Yeah, like what does the Queen of Christmas have to do with Lord of the Rings? Actually, <laughs> one of my first jobs was working in business affairs as a legal assistant for New Line Cinema. So I had to do all the clearances for, um, you know, soundtrack albums, working with composers like Hans Zimmer, working on all the soundtracks for, um, you know, just clearing music rights and everything. Um, when I was way younger, once upon a time, I actually was in law school. Um, I was at Fordham Law School. Yeah, there you go. And yeah. I decided not to be a lawyer, um, probably because of this job, to be honest, because <laughs> I realized what it actually would take, but it also gave me a very quick introduction into rights and clearances and stuff. Which so. is a, a really heavy duty world. I'm in it every single day and I, I understand all, all what you're talking about in terms of the, the demand that comes with working that type of job in-house. So my goal right now is to be friends with this guy suing Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> I, if any, I mean, most people sit through the Marvel credits because then there's always, you know, usually mid-credit scenes. But if you ever sit through the credits of any other movie, you see how many people are behind the scenes of going into the movie, right? Yeah. So it's insane. Like, the credits alone are like seven minutes now long. Now you're going to have to see if Liz's uh, name is in there in the credits. Actually, I, my name is thanked in many of the credits of many movies and soundtracks. Oh, and one of the first soundtracks soundtracks I ever uh, worked on was Elf. Oh. Um, that was way fun for me. That's awesome. And very much up your alley, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but certainly, you know, since you said you want to be friends with this guy that's suing uh, Lord of the Rings, or, or Tolkien Enterprises and Amazon, let's talk about this lawsuit. So uh, you couldn't have asked for a more Greek name ever in the history of life. Demetrius Polychron. Like, my, I thought my name was Greek. Forget it. Anybody's name that's Papadopoulos can go kick rocks because this is like. Hey, that's my. That's legit. My godparent. Oh my gosh! Sorry. No offense. No offense, any Papadopoulos. <laughs> so, so, um, so Demetrius Papadopoulos. Uh, Demetrius, listen to me. Demetrius Polychron um, wrote a seven-book series called War of the Rings, which he says in uh, a now-filed complaint in, uh, I believe, California, that. Uh, he was inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien and his work. He had sent a copy of his first book, Fellowship of the King, to Tolkien's grandson. Crickets, total crickets, did not hear back whatsoever, and I believe this was in 2017 that this book was sent. Mm -hmm. Then years pass, and then finally, Amazon Studios approaches Tolkien Enterprises asking for permission with uh, you know, them to develop 
essentially a prequel series to all of the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit movies that have been syndicated in movie theaters across the uh, globe. So the, if for anybody that doesn't know, Amazon Studios was able to secure a deal for $250 million, which is the reason why we have a lawsuit here valued at 250 mil, the value of the Rings of Power uh, lawsuit, or the, or the value of the Rings of Power um, series. Right. So uh, Tolkien, uh, Tolkien Enterprises and Amazon, they're being sued for uh, trademark infringement, but they're also being sued for uh, a, a bevy of other different claims associated with it. Um, they exhibit, um, actually it's primarily copyright infringement, I should, I should clarify, it's a copyright infringement lawsuit rather. Um, and he, he had submitted a bevy of different exhibits, it's like a, a sh sheets and sheets long of different exhibits. A sheet exhibits. ton of exhibits? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do a disclaimer for curse words here. <laughs> um, uh, so all of that was uh, submitted as evidence in this lawsuit. So it's a, it's a, I mean, it's, there's a lot to it to unpack, but I mean, you know, r right off the bat, I think, you know, I think it's important to share with uh, listeners out there and certainly for the students that are here listening, you know, my whole shtick with copyright infringement, in order to succeed in a copyright infringement claim, you must have a valid copyright. One of those 106 rights are violated, which uh, under section 106 of the Copyright Act, those are exclusive rights that are afforded to copyright owners. The right to reproduce their work, the right to publicly display that work, the right to publicly perform that work. There are six that are enumerated in the Copyright Act. And then in addition, the person claiming infringement must plausibly plead that the infringer had access to the original copyrighted work and that there was substantial similarity between the infringing work and the original work of authorship. So, you know, I mean, from your perspective, you're, you're a massive Lord of the Rings fan, and we're going to, I would love your perspective as well, Liz, but I mean, what, what do you think based on like what we've got here factually and even just from what we know of Tolkien lore and all the Lord of the Rings stuff? Right. I, I find it very interesting. Um, I posted about this on my LinkedIn and a guy who's the CEO of a, a company called Starlight Pictures, I believe, said that many people send scripts and, and books and whatnot to Tolkien's house. And they're not met with anything. They're like with silence. So we're curious whether you know uh, Tolkien's grandson, who Polychron sent this to, actually read his Fellowship of the King book, which, by the way, is eerily similar to Fellowship of, of the, the Ring, Ring, right? Which is the first Lord of the Rings installment, and also the War of the Rings sounds exactly like Lord of the Rings. Exactly. So I'm curious whether he opened himself up for some sort of infringement as well. Like, I mean, why bring this to light? I, I looked up on Amazon, the first book, Fellowship of the King, has seven, seven, seven reviews. That's it. Wow. Like, it, not many people are reading it, and everyone's saying it's a knockoff of Lord of the Rings. So I'm very curious to see, you know, the actual, whether Tolkien's grandson actually did see this. And I find it very timely, the 20th anniversary of Return of the King, just released in theaters. I sat through the four hour and 20 minute extended <laughs> cut. I only had one pee break, which I'm very impressed by. <laughs> Um, and, and Rings of Power, I think, was renewed for a second season as well. So I find it very interesting. What do you think? I, I think, like, the tricky thing is the access part. Like, how, that's really, in all these cases, like, how do you prove that he even read it? Because as a person who owns a record label myself, I get tons of demos, and I delete them all. Right. Because I don't, I don't want to be, you know, exposed or liable for anything. And if somebody really wants to send me something, it has to go through my lawyer. It has to go through my agents or they have to sign a submission form, mm -hmm. right? So for me, I know that I have that responsibility, um, but I'm, I couldn't imagine that the Tolkien estate was that like diligent. 
um, it's plausible. But the first thing when you asked me, what do you think, Liz, that came into my head was, well, I hope that uh, they can get access to their nest cam or their <laughs> ring or something where they had the delivery to the door or like some kind of way, right? But it's, it's really hard to, to prove access, you know, especially when even someone like me who's not like as famous as, as Tolkien, the Tolkien estate, like I, I also get things that like I just constantly don't. Yeah, that, you know? yeah. I actually think the access prong is also going to be very tricky here. I would even say even substantial similarity mm-hmm. is also going to be very tricky here on two fronts. So what you were bringing up of like fellowship of the king, fellowship of the ring, like this is a classic case of like fan fiction, fan art, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And there's always been like in the book community, in the art community, and a bu- bunch of other industries in you know culture, there's been this like dispute of where do you toe the line of something being fan art and it's okay versus something being fan art and not being okay? Well, I'm here to be the spoiler. I'm sorry. Fan art is not okay, period, because normally when you're doing something like that, you're doing it without asking for permission. And if you're using someone else's work to create the basis of something, you may not realize that you are subtly infringing on the original origin copyrighted work. Like if I wanted to sit and make a whole uh, book series not on Harry Potter or Hermione or Ron Weasley or any of the other characters of Harry Potter, but if I wanted to make a book about Hogwarts, just generally Hogwarts, I'm still infringing on some type of copyright at the end of the day because that's something that is the product of J.K. Rowling, that's a product of Warner Brothers from what they've developed through the uh, films. So it's something that's still tricky territory. And but if you're not formally optioning those rights. You yeah, have no exactly. no right to make a derivative work. Right, and then you know the second point to that Access is, I think, vital here, but I would say equally as vital is going to be the substantial similarity mm-hmm. prong. That's usually been the make and break, make or break uh, factor in a lot of these copyright right. infringement claims. Right. Yeah, and if you guys want to read the lawsuit, um, it's not it's not too long. I think it's like what twenty pages, give or take. Yeah, more or less. The exhibits I really feel are like grasping at straws here. He'll take little excerpts, little lines from his book, and then like kind of relate it to what happened in the show. He said that they directly stole a dragon breathing fire, which was on the cover of his Fellowship of the King, and they they used that in the show. I mean, everyone, I'm sure people have watched Game of Thrones, I'm sure people have watched Lord of the Rings, like, dragons are part of lore, right? Too generalized. Too generalized. So, interesting. I I also want to say that I got my law degree at staying at a Holiday Inn Express. It's all good. It's all good. So we, we wanted to bring that to light, of course, and share with you guys. But oh my god, let, let, let's move on to the next topic. I want to be conscious of time. We don't want to interrupt any of the other speakers that are coming after us. So let's talk about you, Liz. Well, okay. <laughs> You're very important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so yeah, and and Tony made this disclaimer before. Uh, we had the guests in the classroom send in some questions that they wanted to answer. Uh, no so yeah, we wanted to make this as interactive as possible. Um, so, Liz, Tony gave a little overview of your career, but let's start from the beginning. Uh, this was a question from the audience. How did you get involved in the music space? What inspired you, and why Christmas music specifically? Since I was seven years old, I had always wanted to be a Christmas songwriter. I mean, since I was seven, I have VH- VHS tapes. I'm showing my age, but it's totally the truth. Um, I, I own those rights. <laughs> so, um, of just me just loving Christmas music, writing Christmas music, um, just always wanting to be a Christmas singer. And when I told my immigrant parents, you know, growing up in New York City, they were like, that's not a real career. You're going to be like a lawyer and a doctor. And I'm like, I am. 
Um, so it was just never something that was really offered to me at the time in terms of like access to this kind of career. Um, I tried. I mean, even in, in high school, I was offered a record deal with CNC Music Factory. They're the people that do everybody dance now. Yeah, he's rolling in it until the rest of his life. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I signed my first really terrible deal. I had a very terrible lawyer who was really trying to protect my mother's interests to make sure that I would never succeed. Um, and so I just was always told that Asian Americans would never make it in the music business. You have no shot in this. So then I tried to stay in the music business. I did. I was a paralegal. I was a business affairs assistant. I cleared soundtrack credits. I would call people to make sure their, their names were spelled right. I tried everything. I, I was a roadie for Sugar Ray. I went on tour wow. and I, I tried and it was just not panning out. So I ended up um, getting a real job and becoming like a real person and a jobby job and a cubicle and like benefits and all the things that we all are told we want. And I was miserable. I was so miserable. And I remember thinking like, God, I hate my, God, I hate my job. God, is this, is this, this is all I have is this just work for other people and, and do this stuff. And I was doing great things. I mean, I ended up being an executive at Condé Nast. I worked at MTV, I worked at A&E. Wow. So like I was working with business development. I was creating new shows, new projects and stuff, but it was never something that I wanted to do. And I think I realized at a really young age that time is our most valuable resource not money, not anything else, time and health maybe, right? So I um, ended up just trying to be a Christmas artist because I was so unhappy. I thought, what's the one thing that makes me happy? And I said, it was Christmas music. And um, about 12, 13 years ago, I picked up a guitar, didn't know how to play it. I just started writing music at night after work. I would switch out from my heels to my sneakers, go into recording studios until three in the morning, just start writing music with other people and recording it, recording demos. Um, and then I just realized like, I thought about my nighttime life more than my day job. And I would be sitting at my desk at my day job thinking, I don't wanna review this contract. I wanna finish that song I wrote last night. And it just started to grow and grow and grow until I realized like, I'm not spending my time wisely. My heart is over here. What if I put enough energy into the thing that I love I could make things happen like I do for Condé Nast or A&E or MTV. I could make these big things happen. And so I quit my job. And I had a lot of hubris because I was like, oh, as an executive, I can do this, I can do this. It was terrible. I was almost destitute for two years of my life after quitting. Me and my husband would fight all the time. I was newly married, no kids, just a dog that I loved so much. Um, Sometimes he was my only friend in this entire journey, and he would say, you know, I didn't marry this person. What are you doing to us? And we literally couldn't pay our cable bill. We couldn't pay our cell phone. I was going through our savings, which we had saved for an apartment, and um, it looked like it couldn't happen. And I was trying to save face, because all my colleagues were like, oh, you can go to your job again. You can get a job again, it's okay. Like, we know that this was a thing, and you could just get your job back. And I was like, no, this is not a thing. This is what I really believe in. And so I finally asked for help and I started a Kickstarter. And I said, listen, friends and family and everyone who's watched me kind of flounder for two years, I really need your help. And um, I, um, no, even before that, I tried to send demos to artists. I went to every conference. I spent every dollar I had, every credit card, like reward point I had to fly to South by Southwest or all these conferences meeting A&Rs. No one wanted to give me a chance. 
everyone would laugh at me. I met Diplo once, and he was like, oh, "What do you What do you want to do?" I'm like, "I want to be a, a a Christmas artist," and he laughed at me. And then this dude started doing Christmas music, and I was like, <laughs> "The great irony of all." Totally, <laughs> totally. Um, and I was just totally failing. And I remembered I thought I was going to finally succeed when I reached Kelly Clarkson's A and R, and I was like, "This is perfect. I have perfect songs for her." And that was like the last the last cut that almost killed me mm-hmm. was when they rejected my music. I said to my friends, I, I really need to make this a go. And, and, and Steve Lillywhite, this producer that I had befriended, cold, cold Facebooked him on Facebook. He said, to, he said to me, you know, Elizabeth, just do it yourself. There's this thing called Kickstarter. You're pretty enough. You can sing. Just do it yourself. Just do it yourself. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm too old. I'm in my 30s. Like, I'm not young enough to do this. I just wanted to be a songwriter. I didn't want to be, I really didn't want to be an artist at the time, but I knew that I was the only vehicle that could make it happen. So I put my pride aside. It took me six months to ask people because I was so embarrassed that I was failing. I was so embarrassed that I was failing that I didn't want to even admit to my friends and family that I was broke. And I asked them for help. And all of my friends and family, it's like, it's almost like, it's a wonderful life. Everyone came in and started chipping like $20 here, $20 there. I raised $10,000. And from that album, Everyday Holidays, I was able to have my first Billboard hit. Mm, that's great. That's wonderful. And from that album, I had my first client, the Kardashians, that wanted to license nine songs. That's wonderful. And that's how I started my business. That's great. What a what an inspirational story and truly shows a level of perseverance that I think a lot of musicians uh, strive for, but I think you're a testimony to that. Um, given that you were so passionate about pursuing Christmas music as the genre, what do you think like makes a good Christmas song? Like, you know, is it is it like it can't come from AI. It has to come from the heart, a human heart, with real human experiences that connect and share with other human human beings um, for generations before and after them. So, <laughs> you know, like it, it has to be very honest and true. Absolutely, and and you know, it could cover a bevy of different manners. It could be love in Christmas or love during Christmas season. It could be just loving Christmas period. It, it could also be hating Christmas because I have a lot of songs about that. And then, and, then, and you know, it's also very popular and, or just being sad at Christmas, you yeah. know, just. Or hating the Christmas gift that you, that you got. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, works very well. Yeah, too. it definitely works. So as long as it's from the heart, I think is what matters during the holiday season. Yeah. So. Um, so let's talk about the, you know, your foray into the music industry. You're in a very unique position because you have your own company where you curate well, your own, yeah, I mean, you know, music library and all that. I do. Um, so you've been doing this for several years. What have you noticed as sort of the pitfalls or things that you need to be aware of when you're creating or owning music? Well, so I am in a very lucky position where nobody wanted anything I was making, so I ended up owning everything. And then I realized <laughs> as I was doing my own development of my my catalog and my brand and my artist uh, development, my own artist development, I. I realized I was actually quite lucky that I learned how to really protect all the avenues and the, 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 the revenue streams and the IP around what I was actually making. So for me, as an artist, I started just making music, which I loved. And I think a lot of artists kind of misunderstand or don't even think of what they're making needs to be protected, almost like when you have a child. You know what I mean? You have to protect their interests. Just, you know, any form of IP that you create has to be protected. And so for me, I guess also my quick learning, I I joked about my Holiday Inn Express, but I also really worked as a business affairs person. Mm -hmm. So I, I understood very intuitively 
um, rights clearances and I was around a lot of IP lawyers that I could ask questions to that were willing to help me when, when I was formal, formalizing my business, right? So I had to really quickly learn, um, you know, that you have masters, you have publishing, you have like artist rights, you have, you know, recording rights and all these other things that comprise, uh, you know, a product in the music business, right? So um, I think it's really important for artists to understand the business side of it. Um, I don't think that they often do because I think that the way the industry has always been is you're an artist, don't worry about the business. But when you find yourself in that position, someone in your business is going to screw you over. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, whenever, whenever anyone says that to me, like, oh, you should be an artist, you should never worry about your business, I always worry about that person, right? Because you should, oh, would you, would you ever say that about your child, if you had a child? Right. Be like, oh, that's your child, you shouldn't worry about their privacy, don't worry about their privacy, you should always, like, be really uh, mindful of that, you know? So th that's a great segue into our into the next question that we want to talk about. Um, I believe Tony, in episode nine, we spoke about all the different underlying rights for music yes. composition. Yeah. So check out episode nine Definitely if, if out you want a more in depth review. Um, but there's so many components that go into creating and owning music, yes. and you're seeing uh, you know these big stars like Justin Bieber sold his entire uh, yeah. his publishing copyright and performance rights in February 2023. My favorite artist Keith Urban uh, sold his. Your favorite artist is Keith Urban. Hell yeah, oh it my is. God, please <laughs> don't egg him on. Okay. I, I am. I've seen him seven times, and I'm going to Vegas again for round eight. Um, in the pit. In the pit by myself. But in the it, pit by yourself. Anyway, yeah, he sold his. Rachel, my apologies. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I have to bear with that. Um, she you loves. Don't look like anything like Nicole Kidman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so Keith Urban sold his uh, master recordings to Litmus Music. Like, so there's. You said about talking. You know, don't worry about the business. We'll handle it. What do you make of this? I think that these artists know that, and it's funny because I actually met the uh, in Universal Music Group. They purchased Irving Berlin's. Uh, estate, right? That all of his copyrights, and um, they're exiting because to constantly market and promote these rights to have continuous re revenue streams is a lot of work. Um, I mean, I was just speaking with uh, the f manager of Bobby Helms, and he has um, the uh, Jingle Ball Rock. He has the rights to that song, mm -hmm. and he like works hard to create like revenue from that um that 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 song and so i think for a lot of these artists they're not business people they're just collecting the bag while they're still alive because they don't know what's going to happen in the future and i think that's extraordinarily short-sighted i think that is so short-sighted um I, I i don't know i i talk a lot about it with my lawyers too about like what i'm building here and i I don't think that I would ever be, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad this is being recorded so that when this happens in like 100 years, I don't think I would ever sell my catalog, to be honest, because I think that it's, it's more important and we never know, business always changes, technology always changes, but what never changes is your right to, to property. As long as that doesn't change, then there's, you should be able to like really own what you, you work on. And if you're too lazy to do the business side of it, that's another thing. Yeah. And I think that this is what that says. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? So. Absolutely. So uh, we can't uh, have this podcast without acknowledging that you were in, in, in instrumental and central to uh, what was a very important trademark dispute that made the news. Um, and if you probably recognize by the name Elizabeth Chan, you probably recognize it for a reason. And that was because Liz 
was uh, part of a trademark dispute with Mariah Carey over the Queen of Christmas trademark registration that she attempted last year. So um, we're gonna, I'm gonna briefly lay out the facts for anybody that hasn't heard of this story. Um, obviously, because there is this pending legal matter associated with it, um, we're not really gonna ask Liz to comment entirely on it. We're just gonna ask more generalized questions, but to help set the stage because it's been neutrally reported, Mariah Carey attempted to register the trademark Queen of Christmas in the USPTO. For what it's worth for everybody listening and for everybody here in the live audience, uh, Mariah Carey has registered it in an insane number of different classes of goods and services. Just to give you a sample size, fragrances for personal use, jewelry, jewelry boxes, carrying cases, backpacks, beverage, glassware, Christmas tree decorations, food products, namely milk, chocolate milk, beverages having a milk base, oat milk, coconut milk, almond milk, soy milk, nut milk, rice milk, lactose-free milk. <laughs> uh, we and got I was like, don't, don't take away my lactose-free milk. <laughs> and and for, those, for those that aren't knowledgeable in trademark law, there's different classes that you need to apply for to get certain protections. And they all, you know, you said milk may be a category. Clothing might be a category. Exactly. Yeah. They're, so they're all enumerated. And it's an abandoned trademark now, which we'll get to why. But the heart of this uh, dispute is about um, you know, this 1B trademark filing that uh, Mariah Carey attempted to file. Um, one thing that's important to note in the application as well is it says, the, queen, the name Queen of Christmas identifies Mariah Carey, a living individual whose consent is of record. So obviously, you know, this perked up the attention of Liz and even Darlene Love, who you may recognize as the singer for that, that other Christmas song, Christmas, the snow's coming down, insert fair use. Um, so, uh, so there was a opposition that was filed in, in the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board that Liz was successful in uh, you know, shutting down and getting that mark abandoned. So obviously there's a lot to unpack from this story I'm curious to know just from your perspective, and we're not asking you to comment necessarily on the case itself, but what was the experience working with the U with your attorneys with the USPTO, TTAB, just like the overall experience of having to deal with a trademark dispute of this Oh, sort? it was really hard. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> it sounds hard. The TTAB is such a confusing, confounding process to protect your rights, and they do not make it very easy at all. So yeah, it was, it was very, it was, it was a, great learning experience because it was I was learning as I was going and it was really I, I was very fortunate to actually find attorneys to represent me that knew it better than me but even for them it was this this matter was astounding just because of the number of classes and when you oppose those classes you have to oppose every single one so we're talking about four different marks dozens of classes hundreds and hundreds of products. Um, I think in the legal world, they call it trademark bullying, right? Mm -hmm. When a more- Or trade, trademark trolling, that's what I thought. Do you I know thought. what, what is that like? So trademark trolling is basically when someone registers a trademark just to squat the rights. And it could be for a lot of reasons. Most, more times than not, trademark trolling is for nefarious reasons where they hope to get some something out of it, like, oh, you want this trademark? Pay up $1 billion. <laughs> like, it could be like something absurd like that, but that happens all the time. Actually, this did happen with a gentleman named Martin McCauley, who lived in Virginia, who uh, back in 2014, uh, there were rumors that the now Washington commanders had a former name that was offensive to uh, Native Americans. Um, 
he there were rumors that the trademark was going to be invalidated and that they were going to change their name. So he went to USPTO and registered every name that was rumored to be a replacement for now what's the Washington Commander. So he had registered Washington uh, Red Hawks, the Washington Tuskegee Airmen. In the ho he says he didn't do it for this reason, but we all know he did it in the hopes that. Washington football team would say to him, hey, we need that trademark. You've registered it. You know, and he'll say, okay, fine, but it's for at a price. So what I learned is that a lot of people abuse the trademark process um, for really not great means. You yeah. know what I mean? And for me, I really saw it as a way to protect this space that I love so much, Christmas, and protect the traditions and the ways that I wanted to allow, I thought about this, okay, so there's this mall, this Bergen County Mall, and they make these t-shirts, and every season, they make the king of Halloween, queen of Christmas, whatever, t-shirts, right? right? And I always thought about that guy, and I always thought about the people on Etsy that have, like, queen of Christmas sweaters, or, like, because grandmothers and moms and, 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 and people all over the world who love Christmas, they enter these Christmas pageants, and sometimes they're called the Queen of Christmas. And I've, I've been called the Queen of Christmas, and, and artists before me have been called the Queen of Christmas. And to stop that and have only one person own that as their own personal property, I thought wasn't fair for mm -hmm. the culture of Christmas and for what Christmas really means. The Queen of Christmas isn't that, isn't about making the most money or being the most famous about Christmas music, even though I, I you know, that's my, my job, right? It's about, being the person in the world that you're in that brings the most Christmas spirit to the home at that moment, right? right? And I wanted to protect that for all the people that we will never get to know, but are the queens of Christmases in their home. So I always thought about that. And then I always thought about my daughters, um, you know, ever since they were born, my daughter Noelle, like jokingly, uh, press would say, "Oh, the princess of Christmas," and like, so she just kind of yeah. adopted that name. And, and and you know, anytime I would do press, she would be like the princess of Christmas. Right. And like on my social media, like we're social media. We're, Which we're, is funny because that's how we met. Yeah, uh, you watched my video. <laughs> you watched my video on this whole dispute. Yeah, I did. I thought it was so And then we so connected. <laughs> I was not laughing at the situation as it was happening because it was it's, litigation is so not funny. But when he did his like WWE like kind of spoof <laughs> on it, because my name's Elizabeth, and he like found this clip about like Miss Elizabeth or whatever, I was dying laughing. I like DM'd him. I was like, "Thank you so much for the best laugh I've had about this whole entire situation." And I became like a big fan of his like IP professor. Uh, Thank you so much for the plug. I appreciate that. And now I know I'm the IP professor. You're the queen of Christmas. We got a couple of people. I don't know what I am. You. I, 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 I'm, you? No, no, no. Actually, you're the voice because you got a really good. Thank you. You're the the voice. According to Baz Luhrmann, I'm the man. So the man. Evan the man. Know, but, but that's the thing. So for for trademark, I, I really wanted to avail it because Christmas is a generational thing, and Christmas is going to outlive us, hopefully, if we don't blow up somehow but like so like you know I, <laughs> anything's possible these days but i'm just saying like i wanted to protect that for generations to come because that's my job my job is to you know connect with other humans about the experience of the holidays and if i can't protect that on this kind of level what am i doing here you know what i mean so yeah I hear. so we have like five minutes left so we do have one more topic and then we'll just close it out um, so you, you were talking about AI earlier. You said things need to come from the heart. Uh, and if you follow Tony's account, you could see him bopping to this Ghostwriter song. Such a banger. My eardrums so are soaking wet from how good that song is. <laughs> so oh my God. With Drake, with Drake, it's Drake and The Weeknd, right? Yeah, yeah, Drake and The Weeknd. And we're gonna play uh, a clip for you now. Talking to a diva, yeah, 
What do you what do you think about this whole AI thing? Do you think it can cause a ripple effect? Are these all lawyers or going to be lawyers? Soon to be. Okay, yeah. let's okay, let's kill AI because <laughs> it's going to ruin property rights and our rights to property or like likenesses and the ability to be human, right? And and to really enjoy the human experience. Um, I, I you can look at my my Twitter now not verified account. Um, so <laughs> like I read the New York Times article about AI and um, the reporter's uh, uh, correspondence. Did, did anybody read that article, the New York Times article about it? And it scared me so much that at like two in the morning, I said, this is going to be completely damaging to the world as we know it. Um, I, not even as like an artist or like thinking about it in that way, I was thinking about it in the ways that it could really manipulate human emotion if we don't know that we're corresponding with another human on the other side. And I, I think it's entirely dangerous. But from like an IP perspective, I think it's also kind of shitty that an AI can take away a likeness, right? Mm -hmm. And then make a derivative work and there's nothing you can do about it. And our, our laws have always been slower than our technology. And unless we get people in our, um, in our, in our government to be as quick as our technology, which is never going to happen, by the yeah, way. Um, <laughs> we're going to really screw up humanity. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's so I, I will never like that song. Uh, the, so the, the law, the, the law, the uh, legislature's approach to AI is going to take be alarmingly slow. But my students know that it, because this touches on personality rights, like, you know, my students know my stance on that. I mean, we need we needed federal legislation on personality rights yesterday. Yeah. So who who the heck knows? And I wrote an entire paper. And you wrote on an it. entire paper on it. I mean, it's the kind of thing that I think does need to be addressed in in some capacity. Absolutely. So we're gonna wrap this up right now. We're gonna do our fun question. We'll do it rapid fire. We said, what is our favorite holiday thing to do? Um, Liz, because well, you are a guest of honor, why don't you go first? I love eating. I mean, the <laughs> Christmas food is awesome. I, I grew up. Are you with, Christmas I, ham or like Christmas turkey? Uh, Chris, Christmas ham. Okay. Uh, so, All right. But but the thing is, is that I grew up with Italian and Greek godparents, so I grew up with a lot of Italian um, Christmas treats. Like struffoli mm. has become something that I uh, it, like. I know Tom Cruise gives away his like coconut cake. I want one of those I, so bad. <laughs> I give away strictly wreaths and nobody seems to like them. So what? I always give them to like parties that I'm going to be at. Tell I me next time you make it, I'm going to come over I, to your place. I don't make it. I buy it from I buy, oh, Okay, all right. Like, I don't want to steal their IP rights for their delicious, <laughs> delicious strictly wreaths. But that's that's my tradition. Nice, yeah, yeah. nice. Uh, I'm Jewish, so <laughs> I go to... My go, first song was a half Hanukkah song. Oh, really? The Billboard one. Yeah, yeah, the first Billboard one. There you go. Our, us Jews love the music. Um, so I, for, for, for my fellow, I, yeah, I love Christmas music. Yeah, I know, I know like you rocking do. around listen, the Christmas yeah, tree. Like listen. I love me some Brenda Lee. While, while, while it's the eighth night of Hanukkah. Yeah, and, and your songs as well. Yeah. Um, so I like to go to the movie theaters on Christmas, of course, being the movie junkie that I am. Um, 
But now I spent Christmas with my fiance, who just left, so that's great. Uh, she, uh, I spent Christmas with her family now, so it's nice waking up and opening presents. So that's a cool that's memory awesome. for me. That's awesome. Yeah, for me, it's it's all about the holiday movies. Uh, I mean, you know, you said going to the movies for on Christmas. Like for me, it's like enjoying those holiday movies. If I had like a Is Mount- Die Hard a holiday movie, do you know? That- uh, so I think so. Okay. I would say even yes. in the same vein as like Batman Returns also is a holiday Wait, movie. Wait, no, no, no. I'm an official arbiter on this. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay. You heard so it here first. Go. Yeah. So for me, it's like Christmas Story, Elf, of course. Like that's a classic. I don't like uh, Christmas Story, even though I was raised on it. I really? I think it's highly racist at the end. Well, yes, that is true. Yes, <laughs> and, and, that and, is true. And as someone who's an Asian American, having been raised to, yeah, having been raised to like that movie because <laughs> there were no other movies to watch, my father was very excited about that scene because it was the only Asian representation at the time. We've kind of far away, and, thankfully. And, and, and now, as I am someone in the Christmas space, I realize how egregious and racist that last scene sure. is. Yeah. And so I, I actually went from loving it as a child to now completely thinking that we should rethink that whole entire scene. Sure. So you're changing your viewpoint on your I favorite will Christmas change, movie. I will change it now. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for educating me. No, but uh, honestly, Elf is a great movie. Um, you know, not one that gets a lot of attention, but the Santa Claus Why with Why is Home Tim- Alone not like the Home Alone, of course. Place. No, of course, Home Alone. Yeah, no, definitely. I just love the Santa Claus because of the legalese, like oh, the, yeah. the clause that, yeah. you know, yeah, Scott yeah. Calvin agrees to to become Santa. I mean, that's like, yeah, yeah. As, a, as a law professor, I take deep appreciation for that. So holiday movies is where it's at for me. I was a, a, a movie deal. Oh wow! For the next for the next episode. Yeah, yeah for the next episode. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you'll get the exclusive on that one if it happens. <laughs> so that concludes this week's live edition of Encina Entertainment Law Podcast. A huge thank you for everyone for being here on a Friday for coming out and supporting us. We are so very thankful. Uh, thank you to my cousin Hunter Zarin for our awesome intro and outro, and a special thank you to New York Law School for graciously hosting us. Special thanks to IPLS and MEFLA. Uh, Kat Gumarin, uh Josh, who pitched this idea. Thank you so much for, for that. Uh, everybody in MEFLA and IPLS who was instrumental in the symposium. And if Liz. You have, and, and, oh, of course, oh and Liz. God. Oh, my gosh, and Liz, too. Oh, my God, thank, thank you. you. I think, I think you were getting to it. <laughs> yeah. I cut you off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, and, uh, and thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Thank you, Liz. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of NCN and Entertainment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on all social media platforms at NCNPod. And until next time, and scene. scene. Woo!